0: Would aliens disprove Christianity? That's the question. Um, The question here is not, are aliens real? Do aliens exist? Extraterrestrial beings from other planets in the universe? That's actually not the question. The question is, if they do, how does that affect a Christian's faith? Should I question my faith? In fact, some people would actually think that you need to stop being a Christian. Uh, There are quotes from people suggesting that it If the eventuality that aliens are discovered that Christians basically need to abandon their faith Um, So let's work through this question today And then i'm going to go to your questions from the live chat. You guys are already uploading them I know I apologize for being a few minutes late Literally just didn't realize what time it was. I'm like all waiting and waiting and like oh it's time (laughs) So I apologize um, now let me Help us work through this question by asking this question in response, right? Would aliens disprove christianity? well, what central belief would be lost What central Christian belief would be lost if aliens were found to exist? Let's just think this through, right? Let's kind of take our time to ponder this issue for a minute. I'll I'll wait while you think about it. What central belief in Christianity would be lost if aliens were found to exist? Would we lose God's existence? No. Some think that a discovery of life on other planets would disprove God's existence. That, I think, deserves its own video. (laughs) Um, That is... uh, I'll just say this, that you, your awareness of the evidence for God is very thin. If you think life in the universe disproves God, it seems to move in the other direction, in my opinion. Uh, would it disprove the Trinity? The doctrine of the Trinity is somehow in question. No. Would it disprove the death and resurrection of Christ? Uh, no, right? Jesus' death and resurrection is not dependent on the lack of alien life in the universe. <laughs> it's like Jesus dies and rises again, and then we, we discover aliens, and they just control z right just undo the death and resurrection of christ would it would it undo the doctrines of forgiveness through faith being saved by grace through faith would that be undone by the existence of aliens no would god's future plan of resurrection for our, for mankind that that we're going to be united to him in glorious resurrection forever is that threatened by the existence of aliens and again the answer is no so my, my short answer is, would aliens disprove Christianity? No, but I have a lot of other questions that immediately start piling up when you ask questions about aliens in the Bible. And so I'm going to take a couple extra minutes answering this question to get into these things that I think are very interesting, and they help us learn how to think biblically about everything. Again, I'm, I'm Mike Winger. My job, my goal is to help you learn to think biblically about everything by tackling a million different issues one at a time, uh, doing Q&As as well as topical videos, as well as verse by verse teaching online. If you like that sort of thing, if this blesses you, if what you you know find today is compelling you towards biblical thinking, then you might want to subscribe and be aware of the content. Um, and uh, the next question I have related to this is: Does the Bible say that aliens exist? Right. That, that that's a simple one. Uh, does the Bible actually say anything about aliens? And I, I would answer no. Um, It it speaks of God creating all things the emphasis on scripture is going to be in the area in the realm of the the human world The the human experience talking about human lives and things like that It doesn't however say anything about the existence of of aliens in space. It also doesn't say they don't exist Right, like we we just have sort of a generic and he made all the hosts of the skies He just made all that stuff. We don't have any sort of limits put on what could be out there in the text of scripture So the Christian's in a unique position in that we are open to the idea of aliens, although we don't have an affirmation. There's no biblical reason why you're supposed to believe in aliens. But we are able to, like, let the evidence go where it goes. Like, I could look at evidence for alien life and I could say, I'll just follow the evidence where it leads. And that, that should be our attitude, I think, on this issue. Now, if... Aliens do exist. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of what-ifs. This is like a thought tree. I actually have it written out in my notes here. as like kind of a thought tree of if this, then that. Let's work through the the eventuality of what if we discovered intelligent, highly intelligent life, not just bacteria, which to me is interesting but not actually very important, but if we discovered highly intelligent life uh, out, off, off of the Earth. And I'm not here speaking of uh, angels, demons. These are, in a sense, they're extraterrestrial beings. I mean, they're not from the Earth. But at any rate, we're talking about physical beings from other planets what if they're highly intelligent uh because if they're not it's really it's there's really less questions to ask okay it's just like saying what if in a faraway place there's animals that i don't know about like that's not really that interesting to me um theologically speaking but if they're highly intelligent then i have to ask some other questions Right? Because now we're worried about like, but are, do, do they have salvation? Uh, how do they obtain that salvation? Is Jesus' sacrifice somehow applied to them? Do they have a different sacrifice? Does Jesus become incarnate in a, in a different realm? And, and I'm going to answer these questions right now. Um, does Jesus like die and rise again for a different group? Or, you know, does something else happen? What is going on here? Okay, so if they're eternal... If, if they're intelligent, excuse me, the next question is, are they eternal? And if they're not eternal, if they just if they are highly intelligent, but they live and then they cease to exist, then there aren't really any more questions to ask about their salvation or their eternal state. So we have less questions, less less issues to bring up if they're not eternal. But let's suppose that they are, right? Let's say, let's, hypothetically, there's aliens, they're highly intelligent and they're eternal beings. They have the same kind of eternal potential that we do that also angels do so the next question I have is are they sinless have they sinned are they in need of salvation the way that we are and if you say yes then are they like unfallen angels in that they have a place in God's plan but they're they're just not part of the bride so then those people have a decision to make but there's no salvation that is offered to them it's it's like they're more like the angels right Adam and Eve were given a a choice then we're all, all the rest of us are born into sin we then need to be saved. So we start in a place of condemnation and we need to be saved. They might be coming in, a, in in the opposite. They may start in a place like the angels of acceptance and then individually choosing to reject. And then that's a final decision. So perhaps there is no salvation offered to them. That's a, a This is all just hypotheticals, guys. This is conjecture warning. This is total conjecture. This is just what if scenarios. Personally, I, I'm not convinced there's any alien life in the universe. Um, this is a what if scenario. But I can be open to it at least, open to the evidence and where it would lead. So perhaps they are like angels in that sense, or perhaps another option, maybe, maybe they just lack free will. Maybe they're, they're sinless because they just lack free will. They don't, they're highly intelligent, but they don't have that free will capability that we have. And perhaps God just has a, a purpose and plan for them in that regard. But if you say that they are actually sinful, then the question is, are they redeemable? Are they redeemable? Um, if not, if they're not redeemable, then that may be sad, but that is, means that they're more like the angelic rebels against God and less like the human ones in that, in that sense of free will and choice making. If they are redeemable, it brings up other questions. How are they redeemable? Is it by virtue of their own works or their own sacrifices? If, if yes, if there are beings out there that have free will that sin and then can redeem themselves... That seems to be a challenge to the very nature of the cross. Okay, so that I have a challenge with. That I'm going, wait a minute. You know, if there was any other way, let this cut pass for me. Like it, <clears throat> if they're like us, sinful yet redeemable, then it makes no sense that they can be redeemed in the very way that it's impossible for us to be redeemed, right? Because if they're like us, if they're so similar to us, it seems like that same path of works for righteousness is going to be barred to them. The standard of God's holiness would be the same because God doesn't change whether he's interacting with people on this planet or some other <laughs> interesting topic, right? So that would seem very strange. I, I would reject that. The idea that they could save themselves through their own works or sacrifice. Um, so if they're redeemable and they don't save themselves, then how are they saved? If Is it by Jesus or something other than Jesus? Um, I think, and this is where I would start to narrow, narrow the options down really significantly. I think Jesus is the only savior, even potentially speaking. And so, you know, universally. Um, when it comes to sin and God's holiness and the type of salvific relationship we have with God. I think he's the only potential savior. So here's a conjecture warning. Could they be saved by Jesus? Now, this is considering an idea that you don't believe in order to process through the hypothetical consequences of that idea. That's all we're doing right now. So if they were... um, If they were saved by Jesus, uh, I think I would reject one scenario of this, which is that Jesus becomes incarnate on that other planet. He takes on the form of those other people, of those other beings, and then he dies in their place. So it's like kind of like a mirror image of earth. And then Jesus becomes incarnate. The second person of the Trinity becomes incarnate again, dies again. I think this is a very weird thing, but but I'm not rejecting it because it's weird. I'm rejecting it because scripture seems to indicate Jesus did it once and he'll never do it again. And... I'll share with you some scripture on this. Let's look at Romans 6, 9. This may be the first time someone has used Romans 6, 9 to talk about the salvation of hypothetical alien beings. (laughs) But here we go. Uh, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. You know, Jesus is not going to die again. Right, not just a phys- his physical body won't die again. Right, this, this is one of the verses that proves wrong the mother God cult. They believe that Jesus came back, and you know, in the last century, he had his his second coming was in a new body that died again. But Jesus doesn't die again. It's just he will not die again. So the idea that Christ will die again for some other beings, or the idea that he died before he died, right? He died once. He once for all. That's verse ten. He died to sin once for all. So he dies once and he lives forever. So any theoretical, hypothetical idea of salvation for hypothetical beings that may not exist should not involve a second incarnation, death and resurrection of the son of God. I think that that's barred by the clear teaching of scripture. Not only that. And to add to this to add weight to this is the idea that jesus's death and resurrection in scripture is not just an earthly victory It's a cosmic victory. It's 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 across the universe. He has victory over principalities and powers He he claims not just the title deed to the earth He's really claiming all things all things are being redeemed all of creation romans 8 groans being subject to the bondage of corruption That is connected to adam's sin and will all of creation be delivered when we are delivered into that glory. And so the, the point here is that you can't limit Jesus' work to the earth. It would spread out to the universe. And that might be our next um, possibility, which is, let's say a hypothetical, and this is way out there. No, I don't think this is likely um, <laughs> at all. <laughs> but I want us to just think biblically, right? This, this is like an exercise in just processing things with a biblical faithfulness, saying like what, what boundaries does scripture give us in, in these scenarios? So what if the alien beings are much, li- very much like a mirror image of us? That they're, they're, they're made themselves in the image of Adam. Not the image directly of God, but the image of Adam, right? So you could have these other beings that are made in the likeness of Adam so that they share in that fall through the correspondence of their creation. Now then, you could extend the death and resurrection of Christ to those other beings without bringing up any questions about how jesus is the second adam and he's uniquely representing mankind you would actually be saying these aliens are another type of mankind they're they're us so to speak um i'm out i'm out on a limb i admit it but i'm not off a cliff (laughs) and so i'm just talking about these issues here so That's how you could theorize that Jesus' death and resurrection could potentially offer salvation if the aliens happen to be highly intelligent and potentially eternal and they're sinful and they can be redeemed and it could be through Jesus. That would be your scenario. That's my thinking on that topic. I hope that it stirs up your mind to think, not creatively, but theologically about different issues. Now, it is possible. Let me just talk real quick about UFOs. I know I'm going on about this issue, but I prepared some notes and was giving it some thought. You know, there's UFOs out there, and there's a lot of accounts of different people saying that they've they confirm UFOs. Um, Do you know the Christian worldview? We have multiple explanations for these UFO sightings. I haven't looked into them, so I don't know how how valid they are or how well verified they are. But I'm again hypothesizing. Let's suppose that there are really credible accounts of UFOs. I know many people who think there are. I don't really have an opinion on the topic, but let's suppose that there are. The Christian worldview has more than one way of explaining these things so the um the the secular worldview tends to say okay they're aliens or it's the government like these are kind of the two options right aliens or the government or maybe it's like secret secret organizations in in the in the world uh, rich people controlling things something like that there's a third option that we have as christians and that is to recognize that angels and demons are highly intelligent powerful beings and there are lots of things going on in the universe beyond the human world right beyond just the realm of human ex- experience and so we do have these things going on and we even have places in scripture where occasionally we're, people are given insight uh, the ability to see or experience visually even some of the stuff that goes on in the in this angelic experience right we're given eyes to see what we normally cannot see And so, you know, Ezekiel talks about this when he talks about his vision of angels and some of the strange descriptions that they are. What I'm saying is this. While as Christians, I don't want to say, um, you know, UFO sightings have to be demons or have to be some sort of, you know, maybe a deception of Satan or something. But I do want to say it could be, right? Like this is a a viable option on the table for me. I, I have all these options available and I can follow the evidence where it leads. And I would even say this. Given the difficulties of space travel and there are way more difficulties with space travel than most of us have realized. I, I saw a Hugh Ross video where he's talking about some of the hardships of space travel. Like just your metabolism alone is just destroyed you're trying to travel through space by. You know, <laughs> it's just you know, the idea that some that even if there were beings out there that they could make it to earth even hypothetically is really a stretch. It seems it's even more likely to me that these would be beings that we already know can interact with the earth and do those kinds of things like demons. So I would actually be more inclined to move towards that direction in my own view. Here's a sad thought though. Some people become convinced that aliens exist because of UFO sightings or whatever. They don't entertain other options like say uh, demons or whatever else. And they actually stop believing in Jesus. And this is a spiritual battle because even if aliens exist, this is not a threat to the Christian faith, right? It's, it's, it's a theological riddle. Um, but it's not a defeater for Christianity. It's kind of like knowing that the earth isn't the center of the universe didn't kill Christianity (laughs) because Christianity was never based on that. But some people abandon faith because they came to disbelieve something Christianity is not based on. And then they disbelieve Christianity because of that. And that happens all the time, all the time. All right, we're going to your guys' questions now. That was a long intro. We're jumping into your questions. Charlie C has the first one. He says, my mother married my stepfather years ago when I was little. It's been a tumultuous life to say the least. He is a non-believer and an ardent one at that. He has a very hard heart. Regarding 1 Corinthians 7, 14, where it speaks of sanctification for the unbeliever if married to a believer, I have found it hard to understand that passage and was wondering if you could help me. Thanks again for all that you do. Um, Charlie, <clears throat> so 1 Corinthians 7, let, let's look briefly at the passage and then I'll just briefly explain it. I won't do the whole study on it. I have actually done that in my series on marriage somewhere in that series, (laughs) maybe in the crazy long three hour video, possibly anyway, when I talked about marriage and divorce, but, um, here's the instruction to believers that have a mixed marriage, right? First, we're told not to marry unbelievers. That's clear in scripture. It becomes unclear when you want to marry an unbeliever and all of a sudden you're like, is it really said that? But it's clear in scripture. Our hearts sometimes cloud our vision. But here in verse 12, he says, to the rest, I say, uh, not the Lord that if any brother has a wife, who's an unbeliever, by the, by the way, when Paul says not the Lord, he just means he is giving an instruction as an apostle here. He just doesn't have like a direct quote from Jesus earlier. He gives a direct quote from Jesus here. He's giving his teaching as the apostle. He doesn't have a quote from Jesus. Doesn't mean he's not acting, um, as a, as a as an apostle of Jesus. So he says, if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. So don't marry that person. But hey, now you're married, I'm rooting for that marriage. I'm praying for that marriage and I'm encouraging you to stay committed. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified. And there's the verse, sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her husband, her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Um, so this verse in a, in a nutshell, short version, when it says that the unbelieving spouse or the kids are sanctified or made holy, it is not referring to their salvation. We tend to think of theological terms like sanctification or save. And then we, we tend to read those terms with a lot of theological meaning, and then we'll see them occur in the text of scripture. And we don't realize that. They weren't using a systematic theology dictionary when they were writing this stuff. Sometimes justification is used to refer to justification, the doctrine. Sometimes the word's used to mean you're justified or proved to be right. You're just proved to be honest. You're just being justified in that sense, like vindicated as being true. And in this case, sanctified is not referring to salvation. The unbelieving husband in in the scenario you're talking about, the stepfather, is sanctified I believe through the behavior of the wife, she will tend to curb his bad behavior, her presence of godliness and holiness, her, if she's a Christian who, if she's obe- obeying the Lord, she's walking in holiness, he's just not going to watch the same shows. He's not going to say the same things. He's going to curb his language and he'll, it'll have an impact on impact on the children as well, because she is that godly presence in the home. Whereas if they separate that marriage is messed up. And that godly presence is hindered in the life of the children. And so we're just talking about a positive impact that a believing person has in a non-believer. It doesn't mean the non-believer is saved, but it does have an impact on them. And one of Paul's concerns is the children. When you have a godly parent and an ungodly parent, but this godly parent leaks out, they're not, these people aren't saved, right? But it leaks out a change of behavior into the ungodly one. It helps the children as well. It's very pragmatic, very practical and that's that's how I would take it. It uh, doesn't mean the guy's being sanctified in the theological sense of you're saved and then you're sanctified that we're not talking about that. yeah um, Tim Z has a question, have you heard of the documentary hypothesis? and if so, can you tell me your thoughts about it? Yes, I've heard about it. it was like really big a while ago and it's it it, it sort of died. <laughs> my understanding of the documentary hypothesis. So oh, for those who don't know, The idea is that um, the the books of Moses in particular, really we're we're looking at Genesis is probably the highlight here, right? That it was written by these different authors and these different authors use different names of God to identify him. So one used Elohim, one uses Yahweh to identify God and you can chop Genesis into pieces saying different pieces were written by different authors. Um, this was very popular like 30 years ago. That's when, uh, evidence that demands a verdict was written and they have a whole ton of stuff about if you want to get the old version, the old version of evidence that demands a verdict, tons of stuff on the documentary hypothesis. This, however, has largely just died out. People now do like a real soft version of the documentary hypothesis where they try to like sort of take some of it away, but it's, it's received criticism that it just can't really stand up to, um, it's, it, it's like sometimes scholarship, it seems to me, just gets romantic about things. They're like, ooh, that's that's a fun new idea, I like that. And then it gets promoted for a while and then it ends up dying out. That I think is the documentary hypothesis. Old version of evidence that demands a verdict has a whole section on it. Um, I think they took almost all that out in the new version, actually, why? Because it's just not really relevant anymore. So there, there's my thoughts on it, is that it's it felt imposing 20 years ago and now it feels like meh, except for those who are not caught up with current thinking on the topic maybe one day i'll look more into it on the newer way people are trying to take it and spin it and still use it um that would be worthwhile but the old version is pretty much dead tim z says oh that was tim z Uh, hey mike this is number question number four here i believe in christianity but i have major doubts about heaven and fear of death can i know for sure while here on earth that it's true instead of believing can i know um Yes, it just depends on what you mean by no. All right, so let me separate. Um, l- let me ask you this. What do you think of it this way? What do you know? Think of something you know, right? Maybe you're thinking right now, well, I know uh, that I exist. Okay, that's something you can know pretty confidently, I think. Very confidently. <laughs> think of something else you know. Like, do you know that you, you own a car? Well, what if what if you're delusional about you owning that car? What if you're wrong and the paperwork was not filled out properly and you don't really own a car and you've actually been using a car illegally this whole time? Like, isn't that a possibility? And I could cite statistics of other people who had bad paperwork on their car ownership and I could start creating doubt in you. The problem is that that doubt wouldn't be rational. That doubt wouldn't be reasonable. It would just be like psychological doubt created by someone trying to story tell you out of things that you should have great confidence in. That is what most, I think, Christians deal with. Uh, the more psychological doubt. And, and this is why, I mean, like atheism is so prominently using, even even just secularism, even if it's not atheism, it's just secularism. They just like to use challenging questions to Christians. What about this? What about that? What about this? And that's supposed to cause you to disbelieve the the, the truth of Christ. Or well, what if aliens exist? And now you just go, well, I haven't thought of that. So I guess I should doubt my faith. Um, these are more psychological than they are intellectual. I think that you having major doubts. You said specifically about heaven and fear and death. These sound more like psycho- psychological doubts to me than they do um, intellectual doubts, right? So if God exists, and and that's probably one of the easiest things to for most people to believe <laughs> that there is really a God that He exists, then the idea that there's a heaven, um, that there is you know, this afterlife and judgment before God is actually not hard to believe. It's like, it would be weird if God didn't have us accountable for the lives we live. So that doesn't seem like it's intellectually a challenge at all. The idea of heaven uh, upon the existence of God seems easy. But if you're doubting it, you're fearing, I think this is more psychological. I'm just going to guess here. And forgive me if I'm off topic or off target where your heart is at. I just want to say that's more psychological. So what do you do? When you have psychological doubt, where you go, I don't really know if I have a good, like, logical reason for doubt, but I just feel it. This is where your your faith leads your feelings. But when I say faith, I don't mean groundless belief for no reason, right? That's the atheist version of faith. That's not biblical at all, not even remotely. Biblically, faith is continually based on revelation And what's revelation? It's like seeing things, right? Revelation is like what you know of God. When Abraham actually saw God and God spoke with him, he actually, or God communicated with him, right? Clearly, Abraham isn't walking out in blind faith when he goes to offer Isaac. Like he has every reason in the world to trust and to believe. So this is, this is the kind of faith we're inspired in scripture. So as a Christian, you have things like the evidence for the resurrection of Christ You have things like the evidence from fulfilled prophecy. And I have videos on all this kind of stuff. You can just type my name and fulfilled prophecy or evidence for the resurrection. Or you have things like your own testimony, your own walk with God, where God has changed your life and transformed you. Maybe that won't convince somebody else because they're not you, but you know you. And you know the relationship and experiences you have with God. Why would that not convince you? My point here is you have good reasons. And the next step is to trust those good reasons. Now, the same is true like of, of my my wife, right? I have good reasons. Now, not everybody could say this, but I have really good reasons to trust my wife's faithfulness to me, right? I have good reasons, but yet when she goes off and she's somewhere and whatever for hours and hours, there's, there still could be this lingering thing in my head. Well, what if, what if this, what if that, but I choose to trust. You know, like that is a decision I make to trust. I make it based upon good reason and good evidence and experience and a relationship that's real. And it's the same in Christianity. I choose to trust God with my with my death and my eternal life because I have good reason based on evidence and experience and a relationship that's real. And if you have those things, it would actually be irrational not to trust God. And then you realize you're actually experiencing irrational fear. I I hope that helps. Forgive me. I don't, if I knew more about your life and your situation, I'll give you more direct counsel. I hope those things are encouraging to you. Uh, Faith based on evidence is the answer to our psychological fears. And then you just, Walk out that faith in your life and you realize the presence of doubt, the presence of fear does not mean I don't believe, right? This is what my belief is for. Um, Here's a question. How is Hebrews 13.2 to be interpreted? And I'm not, I, I'm not getting the names of everybody, so I'm just not reading your name because I'm just not seeing them here. Um, how is Hebrews 13, 2 to be interpreted? <clears throat> Have some people literally entertained angels without being aware? Do angels actually interact with creation in a tangible sense? Cheers. Okay, this is something I've thought about and I don't know the, the perfect answer, but I'll just share a couple thoughts with you as um, we learn to think biblically about everything. There's just a process that I'm trying to encourage everyone to be taking part of. Here's where I'm at on this. Um, he was 13th says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for by this. Some have entertained angels without knowing. So the entertained angels, and there's, there's references here to, um, uh, footnotes usually in Bibles to like Genesis 18 or Genesis 19, where there's actually, you know, heavenly angels, right? They're not just messengers. They're actually angels of God that are being taken care of by, um, by uh, abraham or whoever and and they're feeding them and they're responding well to these messengers of god and so the question we have then is all right let's say that angels here does refer to heavenly beings because angels could be messengers that could be a human messenger could be could be i think more often it's it's referring to spiritual beings not humans the word angelos means messenger so but it would it's probably normally referring to spiritual beings so let's say that there's a spiritual beings. I think the the reference to the past, some have entertained angels implies this probably is spiritual beings. All right, so there's my thinking on that. The next question is this, does that mean that when I entertain strangers, I just might be entertaining an actual spiritual being? Um, I think that there, that's a possibility, but in no way does Hebrews 13 2 tell you how likely this is, right? And And that's where I want to say, maybe people get a little weird. Um, I, it's, it's a super rare event when angels come in the guise of human, of, of a human form, and then they appear before people of God. This is like a super duper rare event in the history of, of at least scripture, where we have the revelation of what God has done in time. So I don't want to suggest this happens a lot. I think if nothing else, I'm being told Look at how their kindness to strangers was was such a huge deal in the work of God in their own lives. And so it's an encouragement to us that you should always be kind to strangers and, and take care of other people. You never know when maybe there's somebody that God has sent. They may or may not be a spiritual being or it might just be a normal human. It doesn't have to be an angel for it to be important <laughs> to take care of a stranger. And so I would only say, let's not draw too many conclusions about the frequency of this sort of thing occurring because... The frequency of it occurring in Scripture is extremely rare, Um, so I think we can still apply it the same way without overthinking or uh, overestimating the frequency. Um, And you also ask, do angels interact uh, with creation in in a tangible sense? And I'd say occasionally, yes, they do. Occasionally, they do, and that's throughout the text of Scripture. There are times where they do, and there's many times where they don't. So there's times where you know Elijah's servant has to have his eyes open to see the angel armies. Right, they're invisible. They're there. They're present. They're invisible. But then they go and slay the enemy. So they're interacting physically and tangibly with people. There's times where they come in a form that looks human, but also perhaps seemed a little different. Right? Look at look at Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, all that kind of stuff. So it does happen. The question again is frequency, and I make no predictions about frequency. Um, question number six: I often hear that hear Christians say. That when we face big struggles, it's because good things are coming. Is there any biblical truth to this? Or is this just a different version of the prosperity gospel? Um, I think it's a very hopeful statement for people to make. Um, when you face big troubles, it's because great you know, things are coming your way. Um, I know that I would say a more conservative thing would, would eliminate the time implications in that statement and would simply say, we know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. So... There I know God is working all things together for good. But when you when you hear these phrases, right? Let me read it one more time. When I hear this phrase, having been in church for a little while now, <laughs> um, when we face big struggles, it's because good things are coming. The implication is like you're going through a time of poverty because you're about to get a bunch of money. That's, I think, what a lot of people hear. Um, others, I think they hear um, God's going to be building your character. God's going to use us for his good and probably it depends on how spiritually minded they actually are. So yeah, I'm not that opposed to the phrase. Maybe the real issue is the the ears of the people who hear it. I say good things are coming and if someone's like, "Okay, well, within the next 2 months I need to have some money coming in," then if that's the if that's the case because I'm going through struggles, then that's probably actually more about the spirituality of the person than it is the phrase itself. Yeah. Question number seven, Lindsay Kelsall says, <clears throat> so grateful for your ministry, Pastor Mike and team. Thank you. And I, thank you, Lindsay. And I'm, uh, I'm grateful actually for my team as well. The mods who volunteer to be part of this stuff and, um, and you just everybody who's part of, I mean, well, really, really Bible thinker is like me, uh, Sarah Zimmerman, who's my assistant now. And then my wife who just has helps wherever she can, cause she knows that, um, I'm good at some things and bad at other things. <laughs> so she tries to help with that stuff, but really grateful for that. It's just cool that, it, side note, what's really exciting to me is that we're reaching like, you know I think in the last month it's like 800,000 views just on YouTube, not the podcast or the website or things like that. And, um, and that's with like minimal staff and minimal investment. It, the return on investment in this ministry just blows my mind. All right, so your question is, <clears throat> is revival biblical? Um, absolutely revival is biblical. There are revivals in the Bible. The question is kind of like, what do you mean by revival? I think that's where it comes down. And so I would look at revival as being anytime the people of God repent or anytime significant numbers of people repent and then they start walking right with God. Other people would look at revival as being this outpouring of massive amounts of like super spiritual gift moments. That version of revival, I don't actually see um, exampled in scripture. I think ho- personal holiness is more a sign of revival than spiritual gifts. I think that's the case. Yeah. So there's, there's my, my short answer on that because we're running so late. I'm going to speed through here. Corey McConkie says, <clears throat> why does Isaiah 9:6 call Jesus the everlasting father oneness? Pentecostals keep using this verse against me and I haven't seen a good response. I don't want it. To, I don't want to twist the Bible. Um, um oh man Corey! you know what this funny thing is, is i spent some time on this a while ago and i can't remember my answer right now which i really hate i'm so sorry um yeah this this is this is a really important issue and an important question and if, if this happens and i'm going like oh i can't remember what there was a whole thought process on it and i just don't remember exactly what it is it's too big of a deal for me to clumsily answer but i would recommend um doing some research on this, like, forgive me, I'm, I'm, but I'm not the only resource in the body of Christ. Right. And you know that, right. You, but you could <clears throat> check out different resources. Um, I don't know if James White in his book, the forgotten Trinity deals with this. Perhaps he does. Um, got questions may have a simple, quick answer on this particular topic. They have so many answers on so many issues and many of them are very well done. So I'm going to recommend that you, you look elsewhere and maybe I'll come back at some point and give a, a good answer. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I don't think it threatens the Trinity. I'm just, want to be careful with my answers, especially on things like that. Catalina Friesen has a question. Hey Mike, I have such a sensitive conscience that I feel it's a burden sometimes. People can't even remember what I'm apologizing for. How can I change this? Not to be free to sin, but to live. Um, Catalina, I think that uh, knowing only a little bit about you, let me give you some possible advice. You use wisdom to know if this applies into your life or not. Sometimes our conscience is too sensitive because we think that anything we feel bad about must actually be mm-hmm. sin. And that's not actually the case. Um, now, this is a sensitive topic. This is a careful issue. But I have a video on Romans 14 where it talks about the conscience, the issue of the conscience. And it's in my Romans series, my verse-by-verse series through the whole book of Romans. I really encourage you to, uh, to check that out and, and listen to that video because it's all about the conscience. And then <clears throat> I also have, uh, forever ago, forever ago on my channel I have a a video on the conscience if you just just search Mike Winger conscience I have teaching on the conscience in particular what I'm going to suggest is that you you start to look at refining your conscience to realize that sometimes you might be feeling bad when you shouldn't or perhaps perhaps that's one possibility Another possibility is you're you're actually not um you're just not receiving the grace and the forgiveness and you're not overcoming. So yeah, you recognize that there's sin there. You're appropriate. Maybe the issue isn't to change your view of this, that this is a bad thing I did or whatever, but rather what you need to do is rest in the grace of Christ. And so perhaps being focused upon for a season, the teaching in the scripture upon the forgiveness that we have in Christ, the constant access to the throne of grace that we have according to Hebrews, right? That we come boldly to the throne of grace, that if, according to Ephesians, that we're holy and without blame before him in love, that you could come to God. And I mean, m- maybe this is a test for you, Catalina, think when I pray, do I believe that I'm right with God? While I'm praying, am I thinking, Lord, I'm right with you. I'm forgiven. I'm washed and clean, even though I've blown it, even though I've made mistakes, even though i may be apologizing for something, I still know that I'm right with you because of the grace and the love of Christ. And maybe that is an issue that's going on here is grounding yourself in the knowledge of what real and total forgiveness is. You are holy and without blame before him in love. I would say read Ephesians one through three. If that's, if that's you read Ephesians one through three, slowly, carefully, thoughtfully, because that whole first three chapters of Ephesians is all, is all just about what God has done for us, what he's done for us before it then turns to what we do and respond to God by living this out. Um, Marina Munoz says, are women allowed to speak at all during Bible study, such as read the Bible, pray, open, closing prayer, or give commentary, but not teach, or do we have to be completely silent? My short answer, Marina, because of time, um, I I don't think you have to be completely silent. No, I think think that that relates to teaching. I do hope to do a whole study on this topic one day, and then I'll be sharing it online on on the whole role of women in all those challenging passages, but this is going to be a long, thorough study. My personal view is that no none of those things that you just mentioned are a problem uh, not a random name has a question what are your thoughts on judges 11 and why jephthah made his vow and followed through with it even after god's spirit was on him okay <clears throat> great question um and i and i could tell you been thinking about this because you mentioned not just the vow but you mention the fact that god's spirit was on him and i think that what we have to understand about god's spirit being on jephthah is that God's spirit being on people in the Old Testament is not this like sort of the way it was, the Holy Spirit was empowering the the New Testament church, right, quite like that, right? Jephthah wasn't like this spirit-led, spirit-filled man. He was a, a, a warrior who God spiritually enabled to fight battles. That's what happened. And so this is not like, oh, so then, in other words, it doesn't make his actions about his vow holy right? Scripture, for instance, from beginning to end, oh, for those who don't know, Jeff is called by God to go out and he's going to be a judge of Israel and defeat the enemies of Israel. And he says to God, if you deliver me, if you deliver me, I will I will offer to you as a burnt offering, the first thing that comes out of my house when I get home. He says first thing, not first person. He's not expecting it to be a person, I guess. Maybe he thought it was an animal or something. I don't know what he's thinking. Um, who knows what he's thinking. Um, but I'm going to take a few minutes and unpack this issue because this Jephthah thing is a big deal. Why is it that Jephthah made a, made a vow? Jephthah said that his he killed the first thing that came out of his house. He goes and he fights. He comes back. The first thing that comes out is his daughter and then he's heartbroken and then the text may imply, it's a little difficult to foggy text, whether or not she was killed or as a sacrifice to Yahweh, to God, or if she just lived as a virgin forever she just never got married and she just went to the temple because human sacrifice is forbidden in scripture and so maybe she just lived like that um i i slightly lean towards thinking and i'm not sure towards thinking that she was offered as a burn offering but there are those who make a case that she was offered in the sense she went to serve in the temple she just never got married why because her whole response in judges to this whole scenario is let me go and mourn my virginity and so she's going to go mourn her virginity, which which in, in an American context, we think, oh, because she's upset she didn't get to have sex. Like that's No, she's she's upset because she doesn't get to have children. That's the thing that she's being upset about. Uh, but I could see her mourning that even if she was a physical offering. Now, why do I know what Jephthah did was wrong? Why do I know it? I'll give you at least three reasons if I can categorize them in my head real quick. One, the law expressly forbids human sacrifice. Offering of humans, in particular offering of children, God says in multiple times in the Bible, I never wanted you to do that. It never entered my mind. It's repulsive to me. I can't stand it. He judges Israel for doing it. They knew this in Jephthah's time, right? So this was clearly a vow he made that he should not have obeyed. He should have done something else. And... Maybe he did. Maybe she lived as a um, as a as a servant in the temple. Possibly, even though that's not perhaps my my view. So that's one reason. God forbid it. Okay. So Jeff is in rebellion here, but but he was led by the spirit. No, no, he wasn't led by the spirit. He was empowered by the spirit to fight. He was not like spirit led in these things he's doing. That's the second reason. Third reason is because judges. That's what judges is. Judges is the account. Of these guys that get they rise up, but they're insufficient deliverers. This is the zoom out picture of the book of Judges Gideon Awesome guy you get to the end of his story and you're embarrassed the whole way through Jephthah, awesome guy you get to the end of the story You're embarrassed the whole way through as you progress through judges you get to Samson He's like not even an awesome guy, right? Like they keep getting worse and worse and worse. The book of Judges is a downward if it was a movie it would be a depressing movie you'd be like what was the plot what was the point it's showing the depravity of Israel it's showing how they how they won't obey god they won't follow god not even their judges will be will be pure and right they even make huge and massive errors even as the leaders and then finally they ask for a king and even that is grievous to god we're seeing that that um, that there's a, a there's a sin nature issue going on in the people of Israel that the law being given to them is not enough to have them be right with God that they're going to need a Savior to deliver them even from themselves as they go into bondage and come out and go back in and come out and go back in. That's the zoom out picture of Judges. When you see Judges through that lens and you realize it's an unconventional book that's meant to show the depravity of Israel, right? Which also reflects the depravity of all mankind, right? We're all the same. Any nation God picked would have done the same stuff because that's the way people are. And then you go, oh, I'm supposed to see what, what Jephthah does and see how insane it is and how horrible it is. That's what I'm supposed to see. Because guess what? He's not Jesus. All the judges, so many of them, they picture Christ and then they utterly fall short. Why? Because it's creating expectation for the final deliverer, the one who will really deliver us, who will never make those mistakes, who will never make those errors. It's it's showing you the contrast, right? The, the need for Jesus is being embedded into these things. So that, that's what I think is happening in Judges. Um, yeah, tragedy, travesty, rebellion against God's clear teaching the, that Jephthah did this, and a picture of the need for Jesus. Question 12 from uh, Seven Gweller, which says, why don't we celebrate Jewish holidays? God says in the Old Testament to observe them forever. During the thousand-year reign with Christ, we all observe them. Why don't grafted and Christians observe them now? Okay. So a few things as I'm trying to answer quickly, God says in the old Testament to observe Jewish holidays forever for Jews. Um, he says to observe them for Jews, not for all people, not for all people. And there were times where the Gentiles living in Israel were to observe them because they're part of Israel. They're living in the nation. Nobody else was ever commanded to do this. The, The law was never given to the Gentiles, right? It was only to the Jews. Like, let's just be clear. The Old Testament gives us a case that Gentiles do not need to observe these things, um, generally speaking around the world. During, you said during the thousand-year reign of Christ, we will all observe them. I'm not actually clear on that. I think that there is an an observation that's going on um, in in Israel. Is it all the feasts? I, I guess I'd have to look into that. But that would be a future thing then. Let, let's, let's say hypothetically, the thousand-year reign of Christ comes, we're all observing them. Does that mean you have to observe them now? No, like, right, what you will do isn't what you have to do right now. A future prophecy about what will happen isn't what I have to do right now. Think about that. I think that that is a pretty relevant point. And then you said, why don't grafted in Christians observe them now? I think it's because there's clear teaching in the New Testament that we don't have to. Right, Romans 14, the same passage I referenced earlier, it makes it very clear we don't have to observe the feasts. For... Seven Gweller, I, I want to recommend that you check out my, my few videos I did on the Hebrew Roots Movement. I have like, f- I think I did four videos on them. Thorough, in depth, I mean, I, teaching that would bore people who don't care about this issue, but will really help people who care about it. I went through the Book of Acts. I went through Romans. I went through um, G, just Jesus and his, his teaching of how the law applies to Gentiles. All that stuff is in that series. So if you look up, you know, on my, on my YouTube channel, Don't go to my homepage, go to playlists and look down for help for the Hebrew roots movement. That's the name of that playlist. And it will walk you through these issues more. Yeah, scripture is very clear on the issue. It shouldn't be foggy for us at all about our present engaging with feasts and stuff. You can if you want, but you don't have to. That's That's the end story there. Question number 13. Adventures of Smooch Pooch and Emily Wallace. (laughs) Great YouTube channel name. Says, thank you for your ministry. I'm trying to disciple my dad. And he says he believes in Christ yet wants nothing to do with him. What do I do? Um, You're dealing with a problem of will. Find out what's going on with your dad. What do you mean? When you said he wants nothing to do with him, maybe what you mean is he doesn't want to talk about him. He doesn't want to like... You know your dad, look for a way to build a bridge, have a conversation, be, be, if you can be calm and loving where you don't react to what he, what, what he says, like you're upset or anything, um, then maybe that conversation can take place. But the, the issue here is his will. I don't know that there's something you can do about his will. Like you can't, we can't flip switches for each other, which you know this. So try to build bridges. If you can't flip a switch, try to build a bridge somehow. Yeah. God give you wisdom. Yeah and you might think you know your dad you might think oh well he would watch he would watch the passion of the christ or something he'd watch a movie that might in some way draw him closer or he might read a book or maybe you know if he likes he has other hobbies that you can bridge over to christianity somehow he he likes science so you could take a, a, a you know a, a scientific book that's offering evidence for god or he likes journalism so you could take you know the case for christ from lee strobel which is like a really great book that i recommend people reading or you could he could say well he likes detective novels and detective stories you could J. Warner Wallace's book um, uh, Cold Case Detective where or Cold Case Christianity excuse me where he actually walks through and every every pair every chapter begins with a story like a detective type story so these are ways to build bridges to the things that he knows and cares about as well that might help and pray pray for him pray for him regularly pray for him all the time don't get discouraged if you're like but I am praying we'll just just keep doing that. <laughs> Just keep going. All right. Amy has a question. Number 14. And I'm going to zone. I'm going to go so fast right now. So fast. And then I'm going to give you guys uh, an update on the passion project. Exciting things to to tell you about that. Uh, before I close today, <clears throat> Amy says, How would you recommend determining credible commentaries, studies, and pastors? I'm a new Christian and have concern about being inadvertently led astray by non biblical interpretations and viewpoints. Well, I think as a new Christian, your safest thing to do is make sure that you believe the Bible more than the commentaries, you believe the scripture more than the pastors who are teaching. That will give you a lot of protection because where people go wrong, you can often see it in the text. You can just see it right there. And so give yourself permission to say, I'm going to. I'm going to let this Bible here disagree with what you just said. Be humble about it, but that is probably your best protection. Pray for wisdom. Pray for discernment. Ask God to be giving you those things. Beyond that, um, if you're looking for general, you know, good commentaries, when people ask me this question, I usually recommend, because I look for free resources, I I recommend go to blueletterbible.org. They have a bunch of resources down there that I think are generally good. Does that mean I agree with everything they say? No. Does it mean I endorse everything they say? No. I don't know anybody who I endorse everything they say. I just don't, but I think that if I had to push you in a direction, not knowing everything that's out there, I think blueletterbible.org has a lot of good resources that I would generally consider safe, as far as I know. Obviously, I haven't read through all the commentaries on everything there, uh, but that w- those would be my thoughts. Um, <clears throat> 15, Sarah has a question. Mike describes himself as charismatic, charismatic a lot. I'm just wondering if he can clarify what he means by that. Do he or his church practice the gifts of the spirit like tongues, prophecy, etc.? So I'm going to try to answer this question clearly, but I'm also going to talk about an issue that I get worried about when I'm asked this question. I'm doing a lot of, you know, critical content recently on hyper charismatic stuff, what I call hyper charismatic, right? So Brian Simmons, the passion translation, I have content where I deal with Bethel and other future things I'll be dealing with as well on these types of issues, but I call myself charismatic. What do I mean by that? I mean that I believe that the gifts of the spirit are active in the church today, that I see no reason in the scripture to teach cessationism or that they just, that whole season of, you know, say prophecy or tongues or, um, um, you know, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, those types of things that that just ends. I just don't think that, but I'm not hyper, what I would call hyper charismatic, which is the idea that there is this sort of like what some people call acts 2.0, where, where there's like this you pick the, the the most active spiritual moment in the book of Acts and you act like every church is supposed to have that all the time. I am, here's and here's why, I'm radically opposed to faking the gifts of the Spirit. I just want the authentic work of the Holy Spirit in my life, which means I don't want to fake anything. So anybody out there who's trying to stir up the gifts of the Spirit, I, I put it in quotes here, um, but they're actually doing things that look like they're fake and look like they're not really being led by the Spirit, which is I think what a lot of Bethel has done. Sadly, as I consider them my brothers and sisters in Christ, I think they're being trained to do fake prophecy and fake healings and things like that. And I think it's very sad. Um, And I'm opposed to all that because I want the authentic work of the spirit. So now let me deal with a different question. How much does Mike Winger speak in tongues? How much does Mike Winger get prophecy from the Lord? And here, I, I, I really don't want to answer this question. And I'll tell you why. Um, while, while I've had those things happen, right? Like tongues, <clears throat> word from the Lord that I've given to people that I believe was genuinely from God, like her, from the Lord, direction from God in my life that I believe was absolutely of him. I don't want to talk about frequency for a couple of reasons. One, I don't think there's any standard that we're supposed to reach as Christians. And I think two, that it's spiritually abusive to ask people to verify their spirituality by how much they speak in tongues. Or how often they hear from God and prophetically. I think that that is, and I'm not using that term lightly, spiritually abusive. This is what happens when I criticize hyper charismatic people. I go, look, here's the evidence. And they go, no, that evidence isn't right. And I go, yes, it is. Here's the context. Here's the proof. Here's the scriptures that refute it. And the next question I get asked, this has happened in a number of conversations. They go, well, but Mike, do you speak in tongues? And you got to wonder why is it at that point? where the scripture seems to be refuting them and the evidence is piling up against them is that, that I'm asked if I speak in tongues. Why? Because they're in some circles, how much you speak in tongues is proof that you can be listened to, right? You're, you're a spiritual fool if you don't and you're just unenlightened. You're not part of our like club or clique. I think that's spiritually abusive. I don't think everyone speaks in tongues in the first place. I'm not gonna join that club of trying to prove credentials with how much spiritual experiences I supposedly have. I think it's arrogant and I think it's abusive. <laughs> so now if you've never been part of that, you're like, what are you talking about, Mike? Then forgive me. Look, you probably feel like I'm overreacting, but I know, the, I know the circles I'm talking about and they do it that way. It is abusive and I will not play that game. I was asked this once on, on a phone call with somebody and after all this stuff, they were like, well, do you speak in tongues? And I just told him, I said, I think that's spiritually abusive. I don't think you should even ask that question, right? And have I? Have I? Yes. But I... But in, in that moment, in that conversation, I don't even want to talk about it with them because I think it's abusive and I think it perpetuates spiritual abuse, shaming people for not speaking in tongues, acting like you got this special cast of Christians who are the tongue speakers and they have the real spiritual discernment. So forget Mike, you can ignore all of his research and biblical teaching and all of the prayer and all of the work he's put into trying to bring biblical thinking onto these issues because he's not, he's not tongues qualified like we are. Um, yeah, that that circle really exists. And I think that they're out to lunch. God, God help them. God help them, because I think that they hurt each other and they, they're divisive. Um, if you're really filled with the Spirit, you're not going to create that kind of division. You're going to say, "Ha, ah, not all speaking tongues." Let's let's be the body. So there you go. There's the longer answer than I actually intended to give on that one. Um, Jake loves Jesus. Says, "How can you know for sure a loved one went to heaven?" Um, I mean, all you can do is you, you, you say, look, they had, they said they trusted in Christ and their life looked like that was real. I'm trusting that they're in heaven. I mean, that, that's it. If they, if they absolutely rejected Christ, if they actually absolutely were showing evidence that their life was not, um, submitted to Christ in any way, then I think I can have confidence they're not in heaven. But if they're in that middle ground, where where maybe there's a claim of, of christianity but you're a little you're just like not quite sure what they meant by that or if it was real then I just don't judge. I just go lord I don't know. I trust you with their future and I put them in the category of I don't know. I, I don't try to make a judgment call on on everybody. Is my personal view. Uh Sarah Sophia says I've heard the range for Jesus's death be between 26 to 36 with 30 and 33 being the this is AD like right when did Jesus die in the year right the year 26 to 36 with 30 and 33 being the most agreed upon contenders for jesus's death can we know for certain the exact year he died i tried to trace this down before a couple times and one of the hard things oddly enough is trying to figure out when when the year of tiberius is being reckoned in the book of luke i believe it is and um it gets tough because tiberius was reigning before he was officially um inaugurated and so is it his regnal year or is it, you know, there's like, it just gets difficult. I don't know the right answer to that question. I'm not too concerned about it. We we have like that window, you know, that window of time. And so like when I did my series on uh, my thing on the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel's prophecy of the the 70 weeks and this, how this leads to the Messiah, I just need to show that Messiah comes in that time zone, right? Right. That That the 70 weeks terminates in the life of Jesus, which it does. I don't know if I can guarantee on the exact day maybe somebody else has done more research and has more confidence on that meme tunes has a question if god said he would rid all creatures with a flood what happened to the fishes and if they died how did they multiply because fishes can't be on the ark i think that uh meme tunes i would just say god wasn't speaking that literal that literally that woodenly when he's like destroy all f- all flesh he didn't necessarily mean like um all the fish are going to die, all that kind of thing. I think we're just taking him too literally. It's a sweeping statement that's not meant to be an exacting uh, statement. That'd be my opinion there. Question 19, Chase Chance says, are white lies okay to spare your spouse's feelings? For example, they ask what someone said and you say, I'm not really sure, but you do remember. <laughs> and uh, and uh, <clears throat> um, I, I tend to think that white lies like that do have are, are a moral compromise. And it seems to me that When we give ourselves permission to use white lies like that we create and we become untrustworthy and we're also controlling information for other people um so generally speaking i think in my view okay this is my, my opinion um this seems like this is just wrong that you need to come up with better ways of answering those questions like honey i don't want to talk about it um or Whatever you 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 work it out with your in your relationship. I don't think this is healthy. I don't really want to get into this, and you just be honest with them, or you tell them and you let them deal with it. Um. The the time where this becomes really challenging to me to complete to be completely honest. I have a I have a good friend whose wife got Alzheimer's, and as things progressed with Alzheimer's, it becomes very very difficult to manage the other person, and this is a situation where I I do wonder. If in this scenario, what you might call, well, what is a lie, it's like not true, is actually the right thing to do with a loved one. Um, And let me explain why. With an Alzheimer's patient who's getting, progressing along, they will become obsessed with an issue. Um, So they might come at you even angry. Um, I want to go to the store. I want to go to the store. We need to go to the store. We're going to go to the store. And you keep saying, we're not going to the store. We can't go to the store. We're not going to go to the store. And it just makes them more and more angry. Whereas if you had responded with, oh sure, we'll go in just a couple minutes. A couple minutes later, they don't remember, but you were able to like pacify a potentially angry and sometimes potentially violent person at that point. My thought here is that the Alzheimer patient, um, whether you tell them the truth or a lie, they still don't understand either way. Like there's a stage where there is no understanding, right? You're just trying to help them feel through the moment to be completely honest. And I do think there could be a justification for being dishonest Because honesty doesn't work with them anyways. They don't understand why you're not going to the store. They don't understand that you're not going to the store. They don't even, maybe, don't even know what they mean by go to the store at that point. And so I I could see a place coming in where you go, okay, maybe this is the exception to that rule. But just to spare somebody's feelings, I think that's a slippery slope. So my thoughts on that. God give us wisdom. I hope I'm not giving you guys any bad counsel here. Um, I have spent some time on these issues. Yeah. Yeah. Last question for today comes from Mad Midget Hobbit, who says, How much freedom do we have in the marriage bed? Are, and, and okay, parent warning here. You guys, I'm going to answer this question very honestly, openly here. So if you got youngins, this is not the best time to be watching. <laughs> Click off early. Um, so, how much freedom do we have in the marriage bed? Are some sexual acts prohibited, even for married couples? Thanks for answering my question. I think that the way I answer this question, I'll, I'll try to answer it as as thoughtfully gingerly as I can here, but to be as clear as possible. Um, I think that the the implication I get in scripture, like Romans one, is that there is a natural use of the woman, right? And, and I'll, I'll actually read the condemnation in Romans one when it comes to the issue of, of sex. And, um, and it relates specifically to homosexuality, but there's a lesson we can learn here um, on this topic the nature of the sexual, the sexual relationship and how it relates to marriage. So here's my thoughts on this. I think they're valid. I'm basing them on a clear teaching of scripture, but I'm bringing them into, I'm sort of, I'm sort of applying that beyond. I just want you to know this is, this is, um, some, it's, this is my interpretation of what, of what this means here. So Romans one twenty four. uh, therefore God gave gave them over to lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their, their bodies would be dishonored among them. This is going to specifically refer to sexual sin for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is a blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Notice that the term he uses for describing lesbian behavior is they exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. So you are created for a certain kind of behavior, and you're doing something that's contrary to that. This is key to my understanding on how to answer your question. Let me read on a bit more. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman. That would be the appropriate. That would be the appropriate sexual expression. The natural function of the woman between the man and woman. Their, their physical bodies are designed to be together, and that would be the natural function and burned in their desire toward one another men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons, the due penalty of their error, implying possibly that STDs and, and, um, and this sort of psychological harm that can be caused by these types of sins. And so I won't read on in in Romans there. My point was that it's a natural affections and natural physical, you know, engaging behaviors. So here's my thought. If There is behavior in the marriage bed that is more unnatural and more harmful physically. It should be avoided and it should not be done, even though it's between a man and wife. And so here, and you guys, I'm going to be very blunt here. I do think this applies to anal intercourse. I think that's, un. and this isn't because I'm just, I'm like, oh, you just have these like um, you're, you're just a prude or whatever. <laughs> Although from the world's perspective, I am a prude because I have all these really high moral standards that Jesus gives me, um, that they call prudish because they just hate righteousness. But, but I do think that, that anal intercourse is physically harmful. It, it, it's unnatural and actually physically harmful. And there's plenty of research to show this causing things like incontinence and, um, anal fissures and things like that. I've done research on this topic of in my whole series on homosexuality, trying to really understand the, 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 the issue well. Difficult research to do, but let's just say this is unnatural and causes physical problems, whether it's done to a male or female body. Sorry. So I think that's the one thing I would say that's unnatural. Why? Because it causes physical ailments as a regular occurrence of this behavior. So that that's my answer. There is that. That's the one thing I would say. That seems unnatural. Uh, in addition to that, in the marriage bed, anything that would be abusive—if um, somebody wants to, you know, violently hurt somebody else, um, injure them, choke them, things like this—this this is ungodly. This is wicked. This is this is the this is anger, wrath, malice. This is weird, sinful, fetishistic behavior that needs to be stopped. That that's to be said there. But the. The physical passions and intense passions between a husband and wife in the marriage bed are a good and wonderful thing to be nurtured and enjoyed and you can thank God for them. That is entirely appropriate. We should not respond to marriage, various other sexual experiences in the bed with your spouse. We should not respond to that the way that we respond to sinful sexual things and this is something that we need to get in our heads. We grow up, seeing so much wicked, sinful behavior that we can forget that that there is this beautiful, wonderful thing. I like to liken it to a fire. When the fire is is raging in the forest, we're all like, oh, we're, we're dreading it. We're like, oh, here it comes. The wind's coming. I mean, I'm in California. We've been getting lots of fires recently and it's a horrible thing. But when the fire's in the fireplace, it's beautiful. And you just, you just like, wow, it's warm. It's wonderful. It's great. I have a fireplace in my home and I, I love it. It's fantastic, right? So what I would say is that marriage is the fireplace. Sex is the fire in the fireplace. It's beautiful. It's wonderful it's to be celebrated. It's, it's to be enjoyed just, just for the enjoyment of it, not just for procreating. And then outside of that, it's a fire that destroys and burns things down and causes harms. So it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And as great as it is, it can be that terrible as well, but as terrible as it is, it can be that great as well. There's my answer on that question. I do hope that you guys find it insightful. Again, I'm hanging this on Romans one's discussion of what's natural. That um, that was what was sexually appropriate was what was natural, and that there's at least one behavior, anal intercourse, that I think is unnatural, causing physical harm to individuals. Um, even if you don't hear about this, you know, popularly, it certainly does. So that's all I have to say. Here is the update on the passion project, my passion project, right? So for those who don't know, I hired a number of scholars to review the passion translation. This is a translation made by primarily one man, Brian Simmons, with some people he had review it, though we're not yet sure exactly what full involvement they had. Um, I have asked the publisher for details. I haven't yet heard back. And um, I have done now four interviews. I've got another interview I'm doing next week. I've uploaded one. I have massive numbers of hours of editing to do because I'm incorporating footage from Brian Simmons in different places so that you can hear him say it and hear the scholars respond. And I'm stoked for every video that's coming out, um, whether it's on Romans or if it's gonna be on Luke Acts or it's gonna be, uh, in fact, here's here's the thing, it's hopefully coming, hopeful. I wanna get some scholars, at least one, to review Revelation. Because I think that Revelation is one book where he took even more liberties, kind of like he did with Song of Solomon. And I'd like to get a scholar to interact with that. These are going to be great interviews. You guys are going to enjoy them. I think you'll learn a lot about the Bible, about those different books, about some theology stuff. But you'll also learn about the Passion Translation and how it has some issues. So that's coming soon. I will try to put out one a week. For the next few weeks that gives me lots of time to edit and hopefully time to plan some more stuff for you guys this winter this 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 uh this month actually in december there's some videos i'd like to do that'll take a lot of time if i am able to get to them but uh i have been working way too much so i'm going to try to slow down a bit and make it more reasonable thank you guys so much for joining me i will be with you next friday right here 1 p.m pacific time or california time um, to do the q and A, I I intend to do that as much as I can, as many Fridays as possible. So this, this is our regular thing. Thank you for joining. I'm sorry for those whose answers I was not able to get to or whose questions I couldn't get to. But yeah, yeah. Lord bless you guys. You know, keep your eyes up in heaven. Um, you're the author and finisher of your faith, Jesus. He's the one who exampled living the hopeful life, living a life that he knew was going to go through difficulties, suffering, die, and then rise again. And he is the one we set our eyes on so that we might march forward. Look, however bad, I know a lot of people are talking about how tough 2020 is for them. Can I say that your hope in Christ is so much greater and it cannot be compared to any struggles that we're going through today. Not because your struggles aren't hard, but because your hope is so big. So place your trust in him. God bless you.